Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. It's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from the book of Thessalonians. And today's lesson is actually from June 27th in the Nazarene Quarterly. Our title is Being Sanctified. And we began looking at this lesson last week. So this would be part two of Being Sanctified. Before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. A lot of times we run into short messages that have enormous impacts. You know, it's interesting, every time we bring a new president onto the United States, they give an inauguration speech when they're sworn in. And it's interesting, the longest inauguration speech was by William Henry Harrison. It ran for an hour and 45 minutes or so. There was also a president, though, known for his brevity, his lack of speech, and that was Calvin Coolidge. Uh, there's a story that goes around that he was at a state dinner, and the lady sitting beside him said, I bet someone uh, several dollars that I could get you to say more than two words. And the reply is, he looked at her and simply said, you lose. And so he was a man known for not saying very much at all. And today, in our session that we're looking at, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, these are some very short verses. In fact, the, the first verse there, rejoice always, is actually the shortest verse in the Greek version of the New Testament. So, three simple commands, nine words in all, and yet they contain the power to completely transform our spiritual life. We've been talking about sanctification, and that's a word that we throw around a lot, and a lot of times we may not really know what we mean by it, but in its core, sanctification is the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. It's being made perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Sanctification is the culmination of God's perfect plan of salvation. It's the greatest expression of God's saving grace, the ultimate expression of that abundant life that we are promised in Christ. Sanctification is spoken of throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament as well as the New. And in fact, we have one of the best statements about sanctification from the book of Jeremiah, where God tells Jeremiah, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now you have to remember Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because so much of his prophecy concerns the destruction that's going to hit 
uh, Judah because of its disobedience. And so Jeremiah was writing to a people who had a covenant, but they had never kept it. They had been disobedient almost from the very first. But God is telling Jeremiah, I'm going to produce a new covenant. It's not going to be an obedience where people obey me because they are forced to, because the law compels them to. But instead, I'm going to bring about a new transformed relationship between myself and my people, a relationship in which we love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Obedience is not a struggle. It's not a hardship. It's not our duty. Instead, uh, obedience is done out of love for God because His law is not just in our heads, but it's written on our hearts. And so we can see that sanctification is God's plan for us. In fact, God's love, uh, as expressed through Christ, will allow for nothing else than our perfection. C.S. Lewis compares uh, what Christ does in our life to visiting the dentist. A lot of times we avoid the dentist if at all possible. We don't go to the dentist until we have a problem that hurts too much to be solved any other way. And so then we go to the dentist with this tooth that's just killing us, and we want him to take it out, get rid of what's hurting us. And so many times we come to Christ in the same way. We realize there's a problem in our lives. You know, maybe it's a problem with alcohol. Maybe it's a marriage that's falling apart. You know, maybe it's a fear, an anxiety, a worry. But we realize there are things in our life that need fixing. And so we come to Christ and we we turn ourselves over to Him and we seek forgiveness of our sins. However, just like the dentist doesn't stop with the one bad tooth, he checks your complete mouth and he pokes and he prides and he finds cavities that need to be filled because he's wanting to give you a perfect set of teeth. Christ is the same way. When we come to Christ, He doesn't just solve the problem that's immediately bothering us. Instead, He wants to have everything about us, and He wants to fix everything about us. Lewis writes, Our Lord is like the dentist. He gives you the full treatment. He goes, uh, what, what Lewis suggests is Jesus saying, Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, what inconsiderable purification it may cost you, whatever it cost me, I will never rest, I will never let you rest until you are perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that He is well pleased with you. Now, when we look at Christ and when we look at what it means to be like Christ, what we see is that Christ had the commitment to do the will of the Father. That was the essence of what Christ was about, to carry out the Father's will completely. Now, we look at at sanctification. We have this false idea that if we surrender to do the will of the Father, as Christ did, we're going to live a very limited life, a life of self-denial and suffering and restriction. However, this is not the reality. I like the way that Ed Stetzer says this. He says, The death of self and submission to Christ is not a sad end to an otherwise great life. It's a huge gasp of air after living underwater. And so we can see that the reality of 
obeying God, surrendering our will to God, is actually one of the best things that can ever happen to us. In fact, there's a parallel between the creation of our physical universe and the development of our spiritual lives. Scientists tell us about the idea of inflationary theory. And that's the idea that when this universe was created, in the very few fractions of a second after it begun, it expanded exponentially. It grew by thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Uh, and, in fact, the universe continues to expand. We are told that even as I speak to you now, the universe is getting larger and larger. So it's hard for us to kind of picture this, how something so vast starts so small and then explodes and continues to expand. But we get the same idea for our spiritual lives. Christ comes into our life. And our life then isn't shut down, it isn't restricted, but it begins to expand exponentially. It begins to get larger and larger. And in fact, will continue to develop and get larger for eternity. You know, Scripture tells us God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace. Now, notice, he doesn't say just to show those now, but he says in the coming ages, throughout eternity, God will be revealing to us the incomparable riches of his grace. Now, in these short verses, Paul provides one of the key mechanisms that God uses to sanctify us. He gives us three commands that if we will follow them, they will allow us a, a, an experience uh, of life, an intimacy with God, a glorification of God that speeds us along this path of becoming sanctified, of becoming like Christ. We are sanctified. We become more and more Christ-like as we glorify God to a greater and greater extent. That is the ultimate expression of being like Christ. Christ existence was to glorify the Father. And he told his disciples over and over again, that was why he had come. He could do nothing on his own. He was there to do the will of the Father and to bring glory to the Father. Sanctification allows us to join in this dance of the Trinity. Scripture teaches us that God is a, a Trinitarian God, a God in three parts, Father, Son, and spirit. And these three parts mutually adore and glorify each other. They are there for the glorification of the other. So uh, they each have a passion for the other's glory. The spirit exalts the son. The son exalts the father. The father then glorifies the son. The son lauds the work of the spirit. And so what we see uh, the early church fathers described as a circle dance. The foundational knowledge of God as the Trinity, not in individual parts, but in the relationship to each other. God as the dance itself. And so we can see this, where Christ exists to glorify God, and God in turn glorifying Christ. We can join in this. So, these three commands allow us to join in this process of glorifying God. 
And as we glorify God, we become more and more like Christ, the Christ whose sole mission and purpose was to glorify the Father. So, what we see when we, when we obey these three commands is we see all three dimensions of God. We see the Father, God for us. We see the Son, God with us. And we see the Spirit, God in us. So let's take a closer look at these three commands. First, Paul tells us, rejoice always. By carrying this out, we glorify God because we pay attention to what God is doing with how He is providing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. To rejoice always is to make a deliberate choice to see God at work in this world. Now, we have to understand what rejoicing does not mean. It cannot mean that we are told never to be sad, to weep, to mourn. Jesus mourned. Jesus wept, the Scripture tells us. Uh, One of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those that mourn. We know that Paul felt sorrow and sadness. And so we know that to be rejoicing does not mean that we will never feel grief, that we will never feel sadness. But to rejoice is to make a choice. It's not based on our emotions, our feelings, but it's the choice to choose contentment over discontent, to choose hope over despair, to choose trust over worry and anxiety. But to rejoice is to make this conscious decision that we will focus on Christ and on the spiritual blessings that the Father gives us in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, to rejoice is to pay attention to what God is doing in Christ. When we rejoice, we don't let the regrets of the past shape us, We don't let our fears and anxiety for the future shape us, but we rejoice, we pay attention to what God is doing through Christ in the present, here and now. So it's to see God at work in this world. Chris Hazel writes that our imagination is a great gift that God has given us. Our ability to relive the past our ability to refashion the future in our minds. This lets us do some great things, but it can also cause us to ignore the presence of God in the now. Hazel writes, God does not reign in an anxiety-haunted vision of a hypothetical future, nor is He lurking in a past landscape saturated with regret. God is present to us in the present in this exact instance of our existence. And when we rejoice, we are making ourselves conscious of that fact. Now, in order to rejoice, we have to realize our circumstances do not determine our joy. We know that the exact same circumstance can bring about very different results, that the joy, the emotion that we feel depends upon how we view our situation, our circumstances. Our external circumstances pass through our mental filter, our interpretation of the event, and this then produces the emotional response. 
For example, let's say that you're expecting to get a $50 pay raise at your job. And the boss calls you in and he says, well, good news. Uh, We've done better than we expected. You're going to get a $100 pay raise this year. You would be overjoyed. You're getting twice what you expected. You can imagine how excited, happy you would feel. Now, let's say you're also expecting a $50 pay or a a $50. If you're not expecting a $50 pay raise, but you walk into your boss's office, you're expecting him to give you $200. And instead, he says, well, I have $100 I can give you. Things have not been really great this year. Now, you're still getting $100. But in this case, your joy is not nearly as complete as it was before. So the same situation brings about a different kind of response. But to rejoice is to make a deliberate choice about what we pay attention to. And what we pay attention to determines how we feel. It determines our contentment or our dissatisfaction. So we can rejoice by looking for moments of awe in this world, moments where we recognize God at work. Philippians 4, 8 Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so when we rejoice, we're looking for these examples of what is true and noble and right. We are looking for where God is at work. We are looking for where we can experience all. Now, to experience all is to encounter something unexpected, unexplainable, something vast, extraordinary. So, to experience all is to let us realize there is a reality out there much bigger than we are. It diminishes the self. When we experience all, it focuses us outward. So, when we rejoice, we are taking time to practice all. And social scientists tell us that when we do this, it actually rewires our brain. That when we actively look for ways that God is moving in this world, it changes how our brain actually works and how we perceive of things. So we bring glory to God when we are overwhelmed by the reality of what God is doing for us through Christ, when we rejoice always in this great and good God. Secondly, Paul tells us, pray without ceasing. Now, when we carry this out, we are glorifying God because we are delighting in Him. We are glorifying God by practicing His presence, by living in this intimacy with Him, Uh, not because we have to, but we live with this intimacy because it produces in us a delight. Now, when we pray continually, this word continually does not mean that it's without stopping. Instead, the connotation is something that's done often and repeatedly. The word used here is actually the word that was used to describe a hacking cough. It doesn't mean that you just cough uh, over and over and over again, but your cough is ongoing, it's repeated, uh, you do it again and again and again. Now, when we look at prayer, we have to realize the purpose of prayer is not so much as to change our circumstances, 
but it's to change us. Richard Foster writes, to pray is to change. So prayer changes how we see things. It changes our viewpoint. Uh, I found a quote that said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And that is so true. We, we think of prayer as sitting down and, and telling God what we want, what we need. Instead, prayer is the way that God tells us what we need. And God tells us that he will provide what we need. So, when we pray without ceasing, it renews our mind. Ralph Waldo Emerson writes, A man is what he thinks about all day long. We saw the verse earlier from Paul where he said, whatever is noble and pure and excellent, think about such things. And so when we pray continually, we are practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence describes it in this way, to do our common business wholly for the love of Christ. This is what it means to practice the presence of God. And so when we do this, we are glorifying God because we show that we are delighting in God. We're doing it because of the pleasure that it brings to us. We're doing it because of the infinite worth of God. Now, if we're going to pray continually, we need to rethink uh, our definition of prayer. To pray is not to carry on a continual one-sided conversation with God, where we talk at God all day. But prayer is intended to be a two-way conversation. To pray is to listen as well as to speak. Psalm 46.10, we are told, Be still and know that I am God. And so prayer involves listening to God, learning to pay attention, learning to see how God is attempting to speak to us. And so to listen requires us to pay attention to the other person. Listening also involves asking questions. And so prayer is not just us telling God, but we should be questioning God. What are you saying? What are you trying to tell me? What does this mean? And so as we listen, we are affirming who God is. We are recognizing that God is worth listening to, that listening to God is valuable. Isaiah 50 verse 4 he awakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. And so, as we pray, we listen. And one of the ways we listen is by shifting our perspective. We listen by seeing the situation from God's point of view, by entering uh, actively, imaginatively into God's frame of reference. And so, listening begins with humility to realize that our frame of reference, how we see things, may not be correct. But this is what we do when we pray continually. We are present in the moment. We are paying attention to what it is that God wants us to pay attention. Now, we need to realize prayer is a learning process. Richard Foster writes about this idea that, you know, a, a lot of times we don't realize this. We have this idea that we're either good at prayer or we're not good at prayer. We have a natural aptitude or we don't. However, prayer is something that we are called to do, not something that we are given the gift of. 
Everyone is expected to pray, and prayer is a process that everyone can learn. Finally, Paul tells us here, give thanks in every circumstance. By carrying this out, we glorify God by demonstrating our trust in Him. We glorify God by showing He is completely trustworthy, no matter what our outward circumstances are, no matter what it looks like. What we're doing is we're putting our money where our mouth is. When we give thanks in every circumstance, we are showing that we believe God will keep His promises. It's interesting. Being unthankful, being ungrateful, is one of the most dangerous attitudes for our spiritual health. Paul writes in Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So Paul is showing us the danger that we run by being ungrateful. And we are never going to be as spiritually healthy and alive as we can be when we do not give thanks to God. And whether we are thankful or not, a lot of times depends upon our expectations. You know, when we have expectations that go unmet, we're ungrateful. However, we need to understand God supplies everything that we need, not necessarily everything that we expect or everything that we want. And so when Paul tells us to give thanks in every circumstance, what we are doing is acknowledging that God is in control, that God is working out everything for His perfect will, that God is going to give us exactly what we need in this situation. You know, that God is out to to see us prosper, to see us thrive. And so as we give thanks, we are glorifying God. Now, it sounds easy to do this when we're talking in generalities, when we're talking about giving thanks in all circumstances. But when you plug in specifics, give thanks when you've lost your job, give thanks when you're told you have cancer, give thanks when your wife leaves you, these things are hard to do. And yet, Paul is telling us we can give thanks to God in all circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't sorrowful, that we aren't sad, that we don't grieve. Anyone who, whose marriage falls apart is going to grieve that. But we can be thankful because we know that God is at work. No matter how uh, we are experiencing this, that God is at work in it. And we can trust God to carry out His promises for us. So as we look at these three uh, commands that Paul gives us, they are not the, the most difficult of commands. Pray always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance, rejoice always. These three things, but they greatly speed along uh, our sanctification because they allow us to carry out the work of the Son in glorifying the Father. Now, uh, as we go through this next week, I would urge you to put these ideas into practice. You know, we have the idea that, that these are simply suggestions that God gives to us. It's like going to the doctor. The doctor tells you eat more vegetables, get more exercise, 
and we think, yeah, that would be great if I can do it. Okay, fine. We don't really think it's essential for us to do. And so we look at these commands that, that Paul gives us here, and we think, well, you know, if I manage to do them, that's great. If I don't, well, you know, that's the way things go. But these are commands. God expects us to take them literally. God expects us to take them seriously. And he expects us to put them into practice in our lives. And if we do, we reap the benefits of this type of life. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given to us this morning. We thank you for uh, the commands that you've shared with us to help us, Lord, to glorify you, to, to shape us into your image, to sanctify us, Lord, to become more and more Christ-like. We ask that you would help us to put these into practice in our daily lives throughout this next week and then on into the future, and we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen.